Hi, I'm Rob Buckingham and welcome to episode 15 of Digging Deeper. This is a weekly podcast that takes a deep dive into a theme or subject and explores what the Bible has to say about it. Will there be a pre-tribulation rapture of the church? I've also been asked my opinion on the Passion Translation of the Bible. More on that later. But first, the Roman Catholic Church includes extra books in the Bible. We call them the Apocrypha. What are we to make of these books? And is it okay to read them? Let's find out. So a few questions, I thought I'd bunch them all together because they're kind of all about the Bible. So let's get into this. Uh, number one is, why does the Catholic Church include the Apocrypha, so the apocryphal books? So the non-Roman Catholic Bible has um, 66 books in it, um, but the Roman Catholic Bible has an extra seven, all right? So... It's got the 39 books of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures or the Tanakh, as my rabbi friend would call it. Um, and then it's got the seven additional books and then it's got long, longer sections uh, in the book of Daniel and also in the book of Esther as well. The Roman Catholics would not refer to them as the Apocrypha. They call them the Deuterocanonical books. Uh, Protestants have referred to them uh, I think, was it since um, oh, some, the early church fathers, I think, from memory, or it might have been from Luther, um, and called them the Apocrypha or the books that are hidden because they were hidden outside of the Old Testament scriptures. So the Roman Catholics make a number of statements about these deuterocanonical books. And so the five statements, and I want to go through the five, and I would say the five statements are actually largely true, but I'll make a few comments uh, as we go. First of all, the Roman Catholic Church claims that it has the authority to determine the limits of Scripture. Out of the five, that would be the one that I would tend to disagree with the most because I think that's very restrictive um, so I, would, I wouldn't say that the Roman Catholic Church, I would say that the church in general would have the authority to determine the limits of Scripture. And I dare say that the limits of Scripture have now been determined uh, in a past reality. Statement number two, Roman Catholics attempt to establish that there is no fixed canon of Scripture at the time of Jesus and his apostles. Uh, some argue that there were competing canons, while others argue that the Old Testament canon, canon had not been fully accepted in Jesus' day. Whatever the case may be, the canon of Scripture was not fixed or established at the time of Jesus and at the time of the apostles. And that is absolutely true, 100%. Uh, in fact, it wasn't until 135 CE so understanding that the distinctions of time are now named differently. So we moved away from BC and AD to BCE and CE. So CE meaning common era 
and BCE before the Common Era. So in 135 CE or AD, if you're old school, uh, was the date written uh, when the Tanakh, when the Hebrew Scriptures, the Christian Old Testament, that was sealed. Uh, and those who made decisions about sacred text back in those days decided that the sacred text was complete then. So from a Jewish perspective, the deuterocanonical books or the Apocrypha was not included. The, the Jewish people, the Hebrew scholars, did not include those seven books in the Tanakh. And I think that's really important to understand. Um, and so what it means to be sealed, the sealed the Tanakh at that point, um, that, that was a cutoff point. And, and they then viewed the Tanakh, the Old Testament, as the seed of Jewish tradition. That would be um, the idea of where Israel and the Jewish race started from. And it was their stories their foundational stories. And so that was their seed. And of course, seeds then germinate and grow and develop. And, and so that's what they would have viewed it as. The Septuagint uh, is another interesting thing in history. The Septuagint was uh, 72 scholars. So uh, Septuagint being, a, I think, a Greek word meaning 70. Um, so 72 scholars were selected in the third century BCE. And that was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So the Tanakh was translated from Hebrew into Greek. And so, and that did include the apocryphal books. So those 72 scholars included the apocrypha, the seven books, plus the longer sections of Esther and, uh, and, and the book of Daniel. Interesting to note there that the the Septuagint would have been the most widely read scriptures in Jesus' day. So in the first century, Jesus and the disciples uh, and the first century church, they, are, they would have read or had the scriptures read to them predominantly in Greek. So Greek was the most widely spoken language uh, in the Roman Empire in the first century, and that did include the Apocrypha. Statement number three. The church from the beginning did not accept the smaller Jewish canon, but rather rightly included the deuterocanonical books or the books of the Old Testament Apocrypha as Scripture. That's what the Roman Catholic position is, hence they say rightly so. Uh, this was the traditional practice of the church throughout its history without any real dissent. That second part is partly true or mainly true, okay? So the church fathers quoted from the Apocrypha, but they disagreed on its status. So Augustine, one of the early church fathers, he viewed the apocryphal books as being canonical. So they were part of the, the Bible's canon, if you like. Uh, don't be frightened by some of these words. The word canonical just means official or authorised. Um, whereas Jerome, another one of the early church fathers, he viewed the apocryphal books as ecclesiastical rather than canonical. So he said the apocryphal books, we shouldn't look at them as equal to the rest of Scripture, but they can be read in the church and they will edify and build up the believers in the church. So many of the early church fathers and the early churches would read the apocryphal books 
uh, in their church gatherings. Okay, Luther, when Martin Luther came along, he tended to support Jerome's view. And this is a quote from Luther. He said, these are books that, though not esteemed like the Holy Scriptures, are still both useful and good to read. Um, and they were included in the first publication of the King James Version. So when the King James came out for the first time in 1611, the authorized version, it did include the seven canonic, sorry, the seven apocryphal books uh, and the longer versions of Esther and Daniel. Luther included the deuterocanonical books in his translation of the German Bible, but he did relocate them then to after the Old Testament. And so he put them in a little section called the Hidden Books, which is where we get the name Apocrypha from. Luther's a fascinating character, you know, and looking back in history, we understand how far we've come uh, in our culture and in changing and in understanding. Luther actually took out some of the New Testament books. So Luther wanted to get rid of Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation. He didn't like any of those four books because they didn't fit with his teaching of being saved by faith alone, separate from works. And so James, of course, he he completely contradicts Paul. He says, he says, you can't be saved without works. He said, you show me your you, you show me your faith without works. And he said, I'll show you by my faith by what I do, by my works. So uh, he disagreed. Paul said um, that we are saved by faith uh, apart from works, lest anyone should boast. And James comes along and he goes, uh, no, I disagree, which is fine. You know, the church has been disagreeing about lots of things for centuries. And uh, we don't disagree with things that affect our salvation. Uh, but other things we can disagree about and we can have conversations about those things and not fall out with one another, which I think is really, really helpful. Uh, not to fall out with one another, that is. So he wanted to get rid of Hebrews, he wanted to get rid of James, he wanted to get rid of Jude, and he wanted to get rid of Revelation, uh, which I think, you know, Revelation particularly would have saved us a lot of heartache um, uh, because people have got Revelation so very, very wrong uh, over the last few hundred years and particularly during the last century with this very kind of pop view of it all happening today and waiting for Antichrist and a one-world government and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, we need to remember, as Augustine said, that the book of Revelation was accepted into the canon of the Scripture on the condition that it would never be used to foretell the future. And yet, what has the church over the last few decades done? Used it to foretell the future. And of course, it's derailed a lot of people's faith as a result. Back to the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha was officially removed from the English printings of the King James Version of the Bible by the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1885. And so it was only since 1885, the last, what, 200 plus years, that our book, our Bible, has only contained 66 books. Until that time, the Bible included uh, the other seven as well as the longer sections of Daniel and Esther. Statement number four by the Roman Catholic Church, when the books of the Old Testament Apocrypha are rightly studied and understood, they fit into a consistent pattern of teaching with the rest of the Bible as well as the teachings of the church. 
Therefore, they consider that we have every good reason to receive these works as canonical scripture and to believe and obey the things taught therein. I believe that's largely true. Um, I think that when the Apocrypha is rightly studied and understood, uh, they do fit into a consistent pattern of the teachings with the rest of the Bible, as well as the teachings of the church. I don't see any major contradictions um, between those books and, and the rest of the Bible. Whether we view them as canonical like the rest of Scripture, I would tend to agree with Luther and Jerome uh, that they are good for the edification of the church but that they're on a different level to the rest of inspired scripture. Uh, some people, I've, I've been doing a bit of reading and study on this, and it's fascinating the number of people actually that state that Jesus, as well as the New Testament epistles, do not quote from these books. Um, but that's actually not correct. They, they don't quote from them in the sense that some of the other um New Testament books will quote the scriptures. And so the rest of the Tanakh is quoted by Jesus, for example. He will use the words, it is written, or Paul will use those same words, as the scriptures say, or it is written. And then they will quote from Isaiah or Jeremiah or Deuteronomy or Leviticus or whatever. So we never find the Apocrypha treated like that. It's never referred to as scripture and it's not referred to as it is written or it was written. Um, but, but to say it's not quoted is actually wrong because it's quoted many, many times by Jesus uh, in the Gospels as well as the writers of the other New Testament epistles. Um, I'll, I'll give you um, one example of that and um this, this will be helpful, I think. So uh, in, in Jude, for example, the book of Jude, uh, this is verses 14 and 15 of Jude, and it says it was about also about these that Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied saying, see, the Lord is coming with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict everyone of all the deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, Jude there mentions that, that this is from Enoch, okay? It was also about these that Enoch said, and then it quotes. So this is actually from the book of Enoch, which is part of the Apocrypha or the Deutero canonical books. 1 Enoch 1.9, Behold, he comes with the myriads of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to destroy all the wicked and to convict all flesh for all the wicked deeds that they have done and the proud and hard words that wicked sinners spoke against him. So we can see there that the wording is slightly different. Uh, so Jude was probably paraphrasing um, but but you can't deny there that that's a relatively direct quote uh, from from uh, the apocryphal books. Okay, so um, let me give you a few concluding thoughts uh, on this. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with a Christian person, Roman Catholic or otherwise, reading and studying the apocryphal books. I see no problem with that whatsoever. They were part of the Christian Bible 
for most of church history, only the last couple of hundred years or so um, that they have not been. Um, whether or not they're ecclesiastical or canonical, as I mentioned before, I tend to lean toward Jerome and Luther's view. Luther's quote is, these are books that, though not esteemed, like the Holy Scriptures, are still both useful and good to read. Uh, part of me is reluctant, I'm going to be honest with you, because I, I, I'm sorry if this sounds, you know, kind of a bit, a bit worldly, but I kind of feel like we've already got enough to read and study in the 66 books of the Bible, and do we need any more? Um, and I also, I value our Jewish roots, um, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, that Christians call the Old Testament. Um, we've got to remember that early Christianity was seen as a sect of Judaism. It wasn't seen as separate. And uh, it wasn't for quite a while until Christianity started to develop its own character, as it were. But for a significant part of the early church's history, the church was seen as, as an extension or just a part of Judaism, and the Jews did not accept or include the Apocrypha as part of their inspired uh, record of Scripture when they sealed the Tanakh in 135 uh, BC. Uh, sorry, um, uh, CE. Yeah, okay. So read them if you want to. The most important thing is that you don't ever fall out or argue with another Christian uh, because of them. And I think that's really, really important to understand. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and that it helps you with your understanding of the Bible and how it applies to life. If you're finding it helpful, please let others know about it. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That goes a long way to help other people find us. And please like us on Facebook. Now back to Rob. Just a quick one to see if you think it's okay to read the Passion Translation of the Bible, the Passion Translation, or TPT as it is abbreviated. It's copped a lot of heat, and I think quite often because of misunderstanding how the Bible is translated. Um, I think it's really good to read widely uh, of our Bible translations because we've got to understand how difficult it is to translate something from one language to another. Now, if you know more than one language, uh, then you know exactly what I'm talking about here, and especially if English is not your first language or wasn't your first language. Um, you know that, there's, that there are some words in some languages that literally don't translate I was doing some study this afternoon for my sermon for this weekend and also for tonight and uh, looking at some Hebrew and Greek words that take three or four English words to try and translate them, to try and understand what that Hebrew word or that English word was getting at. There isn't a one-on-one word-for-word interpretation. And so some words can't be translated from one language to another because there's literally no equivalent word. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. Uh, the first one, which is actually, it's, it's 
quite scary when you think about it. But decades ago, when uh, Bible translators were translating in Papua New Guinea into their pidgin uh, language, there was little or no knowledge of sheep. And so when you think about the Bible, uh, both the Old and the New Testaments are full of references to sheep and to lambs and sacrifice and Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then here we are suddenly in a society, in a culture with little or no understanding of what that animal is and no word for it. So how are you going to translate? Um, and so what they did was they picked what they felt was the equal animal, the equal animal in status uh, in Papua New Guinea to the sheep or the lamb in the Jewish culture. So the, the animal they came up with was the pig because that was the, the closest thing to the sheep or to the lamb and getting the meaning across of what the Bible was getting at. But, I mean, you've got to think for our Jewish friends uh, to talk about sacrificing a pig, which, of course, to the Jew is an unclean animal. And so, and even thinking like, you know, John the Baptist talking about uh, Jesus, here comes the pig of God who will take away the sins of the world. And we hear that and we go, ah, it just sounds wrong, wrong, wrong to us. But that's what they had to do to communicate the truth of the Word of God in that language. Same deal with the Inuit Bible for the Eskimos. Um, there is no word for joy in the Inuit language. And so, um, again, the Bible translators came up against this brick wall because the Bible is so full of joy. You know, the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's more joy amongst the angels of God over one sinner that repents than over 99 that need no repentance. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. So hundreds of references in the Bible to joy. So the Bible translators were stuck. There's no word for joy. What are we going to do? And they were stuck on this for quite a while. And then one day, one of the translators observed the husky parties, the hunting parties coming back from uh, from a hunting expedition and the huskies being let off their their harnesses and being fed and the tails of the dogs wagging with joy and it dawned on them that tail wagging was a concept in the inuit culture which communicated joy and so if you read an inuit bible it would say there's more tail wagging in heaven over one sinner who repents. Uh, the tail wagging of God is our strength. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, tail wagging, peace. Again, sounds hilarious to us, uh, but that's what they had to do. And so if you talk to anyone from Wycliffe Bible Translators, anyone over the years who's worked in Bible translation, they will be able to keep you occupied for a long time uh, with stories of when they would hit a brick wall because of words that had no counterpart in another language and how they eventually, through the creativity of the Spirit of God, were able to overcome those barriers. And so we got to understand that the same is true when it came to English. So the Bible, the Tanakh was written in 
Hebrew predominantly, that most of the New Testament scriptures were written in Koine Greek. Uh, Some of it was written in Aramaic. Jesus and the disciples probably would have spoken Aramaic in day-to-day language, but also would have spoken Greek. And Jesus, who is well-educated, would have read uh, the Septuagint as, as his Bible. And so, When you're translating from any of those languages into English, you're going to have problems. And as I said previously, you're going to sometimes need three, four words or maybe even a whole phrase or a sentence to try and get across what it means in different uh, words, individual words from Hebrew or for Aramaic or from Greek. You'll find as well in the New Testament, there's times when um, it's Greek, 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 and then suddenly they'll drop in an Aramaic word. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money, which is a modern translation. The um, original is Greek, 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 until you get to the word mammon, which is Aramaic. And so Jesus spoke Koine Greek and then dropped in an Aramaic word. Why? Because there was no word in Koine Greek that meant mammon. Now, modern English translations, the old English, like the King James, left the word mammon in there and better to do that and then describe what mammon is uh, rather than reducing it all down to merely money, which is not what mammon means. The word mammon literally means the worship of stuff. It's it's materialism or affluenza, to use a more modern word. And so um, we need to understand those challenges when it comes to translating into English. And so some Bible translations in English are what are referred to as word-for-word translations, and others are thought-for-thought or sometimes they're called meaning for meaning. So word for word translations, that's where they take a word from Hebrew or a word from Aramaic or a word from Greek and try and find a corresponding English word or phrase to describe what that means. So it's word for word. So word for word Bibles are your King James, your New King James, Uh, NASB, the New American Standard Bible, the Amplified Bible, and they're great Bibles. And and I have read and do read. I started my Christian journey reading the Amplified Bible. I then went to the King James. I then started reading the New King James. And then over the last probably 20 years, so probably about half of my Christian life, I have predominantly used the NIV as my study Bible. The word-for-word Bibles can be a little wooden, and they're not always easy to read. And the challenge as well is that sometimes they don't communicate what the original author intended to communicate. Let me give you an example of this. This is Jeremiah chapter 1, I think it's verse 9. Jeremiah, what do you see? So God is talking to Jeremiah. He's asking Jeremiah. Jeremiah, what do you see? Jeremiah responds, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. Now, we read that in English and you go, huh? (laughs) That doesn't really make sense to me. You know, it's like, what do you see? I see the branch of an almond tree. God says, great. 
You're right. I am ready to perform my word. I I am really, really confused uh, having read that. And so you can find out. So that's a word-for-word Bible translation, which fails to communicate what the original intention of God and of Jeremiah was in recording that verse. So you can easily go into Bible Hub. Biblehub.com, by the way, is a brilliant website. I use this extensively uh, in my in my Bible study. And uh, so Biblehub.com, and you can type in any verse. And if it's in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, uh, it'll have a little button above that says Hebrew. If you're looking at a verse from the New Testament, the button above it will be Greek. You just click on that button. That will then take you through to English Hebrew or English Greek. You can then click on that Hebrew word or that Greek word, and then it will take you through and it will show you all the different ways that that is used in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It will give you the background of the word and different meanings and different uses inside the Bible as well as outside the Bible uh, in the day. So Bible Hub is very, very useful. So I went to Bible Hub, and this is what I found about Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 9. The, the, the Hebrew word, or sorry, the English words of an almond tree, so four words in English were one Hebrew word, shulkade, shulkade. And then when, when God says, I am ready, I'm ready to show you my word, it is again one Hebrew word for those three words in English, which is shulkad. Okay, shulkade and shulkad. What's happening here? Um, there's a play on words, which is completely lost in word-for-word translations. But if you go for a thought-for-thought or meaning-for-meaning translation, then it will pick up that meaning. Now, the Passion Translation is not complete yet, so there is no Passion Translation of the book of Jeremiah. So what I did was go to the Message Bible, which is Eugene Peterson, uh, a Greek and Hebrew scholar, amazing man, written a lot of great books. And of course, he's written the Message Bible, which I just absolutely love. So look at the message translation of this. God's message came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, a walking stick, that's all. And God said, good eyes, I'm sticking with you. I'll make every word I give you come true. Absolutely stunning. So Eugene Peterson doesn't keep with the almond tree and the play on words in the Hebrew, but he finds an English equivalent, the walking stick, and I'm sticking with you. I'll make every word I give you come true. And that's the truth. That's the meaning that God and Jeremiah are wanting to communicate in this story is that God is faithful. God's going to stick with us And he's going to make sure that every word he gives us comes true. Now, that's completely lost in the King James, the Amplified, the New King James, the NASB. The NIV is an interesting translation because it's it's between the two. It's not completely word for word, but it's not completely thought for thought or meaning for meaning. It's in the middle. So what the NIV will give us is a translation of it but then it also gives us a footnote which which tells us what the play on words is in the Hebrew language. And so 
I think that's really, really good. So what, what God's telling Jeremiah is this great truth. He says, I'm going to be true to my word. I'm going to be true to my word. Uh, what do we want God to communicate with us today? I, I want him to hear, Rob, when it comes to my word, I'm going to be true to my word for you. And he's saying that to you as well. And so what we want then is a translation that is going to communicate God's original intention in Scripture. In this case, the Message Bible or the NIV uh, would be the best translations, I think, for us to use. Uh, let me give you one more example of this, which I think is a really good example. Mark chapter 10, verse 25. And Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've heard so many different interpretations uh, of this over the years. I had someone say, well, the eye of the needle was a little, a little gate in the wall of Jerusalem or the wall of the cities back in those days, and a, a camel couldn't pass through it. So when they got there to the city, if the gates were, the big gates were shut, they used to have to unload the camel and hand everything through this little gate. The camel couldn't go through this little gate called the eye of a needle. The only problem is there's absolutely no proof for that whatsoever, either in scripture uh, or in history or in archaeology that that ever existed um, in, in Jesus' part of the world. And so what we actually find is that the Aramaic word for camel is the same word as used for rope. And so what Jesus is actually saying here, the word camel is just not a good translation of the scripture. Jesus was talking to people that were fishermen. And so he's talking about ropes and nets. He's talking about a literal needle for sewing. And he's saying it's, it's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. A stunning statement and so much easier uh, when you have a thought for thought translation. Now, there are a few downsides, I think, when it comes to the Passion Translation. Um, Passion Translation is a single person translation. So one guy, Brian Simmons, uh, he was a former missionary and linguist with the New Tribes Bible Institute, which changed their name a number of years ago to Ethnos 360. Um, he did a one-year course back in the 1970s that focused on language and cultural acquisition, not on translation. And as far as I can gather, uh, Brian wasn't actually working on translation work when he was working as a missionary on the foreign field in Panama in Central America, um, that he was working more on church planting. Uh, he has traveled extensively over the years as a Bible teacher, so I'm, I'm not questioning his credentials or his heart uh, or his desire to translate the Word of God. I, I, I am wondering at um, his qualification to do so. Um, now, he also claims that Jesus Christ came into his room and breathed on him and commissioned him to write a new translation. Uh, he also says that God promised him that he would make him understand, and I quote, secrets of the Hebrew, and that he, again, I quote, immediately began receiving downloads. Now, I'm, I'm not, again, I'm not into judging or questioning someone's experience with God, but I do think it's important for us to be um, uh, not gullible. Um, and, and, you know, lots of people get 
visions and dreams and words and sometimes it seems to be spot on and other times it seems to be a little strange. And so I don't see that Brian is someone that's trained in biblical languages. He probably lacks the credentials that are necessary to produce an accurate translation of the Bible, but he does have some sort of accountability group that work with him on the scriptures. I, I don't yet know the identity of those people. So I want to find out a little bit more about that and, and what sort of level of qualification they have and what sort of input they give to him. So my conclusions on the Passion Translation is number one, be aware of its shortcomings as I've just mentioned, and I wouldn't use it in isolation. I personally like the Passion, Passion Translation. There are brilliant footnotes all the way through um, that give really good insight into Aramaic, uh, Hebrew, and Greek. Um, and I haven't found many of what I would refer to as errors yet. I don't think it's 100% uh, accurate, but I enjoy it. I find it refreshing as a reading Bible and one of several Bible translations that I use, but I wouldn't use it as my main go-to, which has always been for the last two decades, the NIV. Important, just as in summary, there are no perfect translations of the Bible, which is why I always encourage people to read several versions. The Bible is the accurate and reliable word of God in its original languages. And so it needs to be studied in its cultural and historical context to determine the original meaning, which is what we've done tonight, say, with Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 9. You then bring that meaning into its present day and then apply that to yourself and to others and can be very encouraged through the Word of God. I'd also say the Bible needs to be retranslated on a regular basis to keep up with language changes. So noticing language changes so much in my lifetime, you know, there are, there are things that have changed, you know, I mean, hardware, for example, used to be something that you would only get from a place like Bunnings. Uh, now it refers to computer um, stuff, you know, there's so many words that have changed. Over, over the decades, and words continue to change. And so the Bible needs to be retranslated on a regular basis. The King James Version was first put out in 1611. If you were to get hold of an original 1611 King James, it would be incredibly difficult for you to read and understand it because the English language has changed so much in the last few hundred years. And so the King James Version has been revised numerous times. Uh, the last time it was revised, it was uh, called then the New King James Version. Um, and sometime in the not too distant future, it will probably need to be the new, new King James Version. And so my encouragement to you as followers of Jesus is to love God's Word. Love it, read it, study it. Most importantly of all is to put it into practice. We need to remember that Jesus is the Word made flesh. So to really understand the Word of God, we need to look to the person of Jesus Christ. He's the Word made flesh, and He set us an example that we are to incarnate or to flesh out the Word as well. So the Bible is not just a great book for me to learn facts from. It's about me gleaning truth from that I apply to my life so that I live a better life and impact other people in a better way. 
a yes or no will do. Will you think uh, that there will be a pre-trib rapture? I'm actually serious and not having you on because I'm studying Revelation at the moment. So as I mentioned a little while ago on this on this episode, that the book of Revelation, it was actually the last book to be accepted into the canon of Scripture. And it was accepted into the Scriptures on the condition that it would never be used to foretell the future. The book of Revelation uh, was written in Hebrew apocryphal language. It was a genre that was incredibly popular about 200 years before Jesus and about 200 years after Jesus. It was highly symbolic and metaphorical. Nobody would have taken any part of it literally And it's really important that we understand that. And it's likely addressing situations that had already occurred in the first century around the time of Nero. Um, And so by the time it was accepted into the Bible, it was historical apocryphal. Um, It was never meant to foretell the future. And the fact that I think it was um, Thomas Darby, he was one of the leaders of the Plymouth Brethren, About 300 years ago, he was kicked out of the Plymouth Brethren for heresy. He then started his own sect that became a cult that today is known as the Exclusive Brethren. So uh, Darby came up with this fanciful notion of futuristic Bible prophecy when it came to the book of Revelation. So the Great Tribulation, the pre-trib rapture, the Antichrist, uh, all of those things that were made popular then, of course, by people like Hal Lindsey in The great, uh, Late Great Planet Earth. That was one of the first books I read as a brand new Christian in the late 70s. It was then made into a series of books called The Left Behind series in the 90s that then became a couple of movies, I think Left Behind 1 and 2. Quite honestly, if you're a serious follower of Jesus, you need to leave behind all of those books and that interpretation of the book of Revelation because it is absolutely 100% dead wrong. And uh, it saddens me to still see Christian people put credence on that. Um, and, and you know, people are even looking, they're saying, you know, COVID-19 is being ushered in, you know, the new world order and the one world government and it's all the pandemic that's uh, aimed at taking over the world and injecting people with microchips and bringing in a one world government and the antichrist and all of that. No, it isn't. Okay. And so let's not get derailed. Do I believe in a second coming of Jesus Christ? Absolutely 100%. At some point of time in the future, God is going to wrap this age up and usher us into a new age. Don't hear those words as new age, okay? A new age after the second coming of Christ. I believe that the rapture of the church is synonymous with that event. And so the Bible talks about the gathering of the people, the gathering of the believers as Jesus is returning, and we escort him on his journey to earth at his second coming. So I don't believe in a pre-trib rapture, mainly because I don't believe in a trib, okay? I believe that the tribulation period, the, the period of great tribulation is referring to the time leading up to 
the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. It was a three and a half year period, 1,260 days. If those days hadn't been cut short, no one in Jerusalem would have survived. Um, the church understood it that way. Uh, the Christians in Jerusalem, when they started seeing the signs that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, when they started seeing those things, they headed for the hills. They, they, they got out of Jerusalem. They hid in a place called Pella, P-E-L-L-A, in Judea. And they got out and the whole church was spared. Uh, then the Roman armies laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And uh, in AD 70, they finally uh, knocked all the walls over, set fire to the temple. The gold of the temple uh, melted and they literally turned the stones of the temple over to scrape out the gold. As Jesus said, not one stone was left upon another uh, in, in the temple. And so I'm not looking for an antichrist. I'm not waiting for a great tribulation. I'm getting on with the job. The job that Jesus gave us 2,000 years ago was to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And so as we have opportunity to share the good news with other people, uh, to live a life that is making this world a better place, uh, the message of the gospel is that the kingdom of God is among us. The kingdom of God is near uh, that God loves people, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. Digging Deeper is a weekly podcast that is uploaded every Wednesday. If you have a question or topic that you'd like Rob to speak into, get in touch with us via Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. Next week, was the spreading of coronavirus part of God's plan? Why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Whatever happened to Mary Magdalene? We hope you can join us then. Mm -hmm.